Welcome everybody to the Extra Credit Show. I am Anselmo Moreno. And I'm Richard David. And we are back again with another podcast to help everybody master their credit score so that you guys can get the extra credit that you deserve. Good morning, everybody. Richard, how are you? I'm doing great. And yourself? I'm doing fantastic. Um, Today, guys, we're going to be discussing a few headlines, a few credit scoring headlines that came out throughout the week. It's the, the last week of July 2018. Uh, credit is an ever-changing industry, and this week we've got a couple of interesting headlines for you guys that we're going to put some perspective on and just kind of discuss. I, I always find these discussions very entertaining and very insightful. So the very first headline, are you ready, is the Federal Housing Administration forced to put the credit score decision on hold. And so what this is getting to is in the, in the past couple of episodes where we've discussed credit scoring and we've kind of broken down the FICO score and how it's used in the lending industry. Well, the very main point that we're communicating to people is Fannie and Freddie Mac, which underwrite most of the mortgage loans in the country, only use very old versions of FICO. Yep. Right. And we talked about how Vantage score is a newcomer in the market and they're trying to compete with FICO, but they just can't seem to get into the FICO's monopoly on mortgage loans. And so that's caused a big point of confusion for everybody. And so if you're new to our show, and this may be one of your first episodes that you've listened to, we've talked about how uh, Credit Karma credit scores differ from credit scores that you see other places like at your mortgage lender or at the car dealership. And the main reason for that is because of the credit scoring model that Credit Karma uses, right? Credit Karma uses Vantage scores. And so um, right now, the people who use it mostly are credit card issues. That's where about 50% of credit card users will use Vantage. But um, mortgage lenders, auto lenders, most most banks, 90% according to the statistics, are still using FICO. So, yes, it is going to differ uh, from what lenders see. And, and that's another reason why you hear people say, you know, credit karma scores aren't accurate because they're using Vantage scores. And so that's... that monopoly or that hold, that chokehold that FICO has had on the mortgage market um, has been around for years and they've been trying to, essentially Vantage is trying to argue like, hey, our model is better, our model is more predictive, it's newer, Um, you know, it's, you you guys are using a 20-year-old model and so obviously it's nowhere near as uh, utilizing current consumer spending trends. So that's their, the basis of their argument. And so, they were very, very close at getting Fannie and Freddie to incorporate this credit scoring model. But this headline just came out July 24th. And in a press release, the agency said that it's shifting its focus from implementing the new um, credit scoring model. Um, and it's going to focus on other things, mainly because um, they just found some problems with the predictability and like what they call the safety and soundness of the model, which is kind of interesting. I mean... I guess on one hand, I can see they've been using this model and they're comfortable with the way that it predicts risk. Sure. So they're going to be very uncomfortable just trying to bring something new that they haven't tested, I guess, for an extended period of time. It brings a valid point, though. You know, obviously, I don't know the specifics on how Vantage calculates the score or even FICO. But, um, you know, if it's an untested model, you know, how do do you know that the model is actually sound or, or... appropriate for for the lending purposes you know you just don't know and if if uh fannie mae and freddie mac were privy to the the specifics and they found that it just doesn't reflect um 
mortgage needs, uh, mortgage scoring needs, and I could see why they would just shut it down. Right. And I guess they're trying to maybe do small samples to evaluate it. And it says here that they're actually done significant outreach to lenders, mortgage insurers, consumer advocates, and investors. Um, I guess to just kind of talk it out. But really, the main... I would say, a, a, like a, the main benefit and the main push behind Vantage is what they're saying is that their model is going to score consumers that are normally not scorable, which mm-hmm. I find that interesting. They are literally saying that 7.6 million consumers are are not scorable with the traditional FICO model that are being used. So, so literally, what that means to the extra credit listener is that 7.6 million people. Um, do not have enough active trade lines on their credit report to generate a FICO score, right? Okay. So it would, you know, we can't say that it's 18 million or 7.6 million 18-year-olds, right? Because that's equivalent of it. If you turn 18, you have no credit on your credit report, no trade lines, you're going to not be scorable, sure. right? And and so what are uh, other ways why you would not be scorable? Uh, if, say, you're not 18, you're 35, um, you know, what What basically makes somebody scorable versus not scorable? Well, history. I mean, if, you, if you've if you had active credit and you don't have cre- uh, active credit, you know, you're not going to have history. Um, and so, or maybe your credit is so old, you haven't used it in many, many, many years. Um, or you were in jail for a while. Exactly. You know, that we see that all the time. And so... Essentially, that's what they're saying, though, is that 7.6 million people have a limited amount of credit, not no credit, but not enough to be scorable, and that they're saying that the Vantage score would actually be able to score them because they take into account non-traditional credit. That's what they're saying, which is interesting to me, um, which it goes to, to the whole you know, rental trade lines reporting on the credit report and, and that whole discussion that we've had as well on the Extra Credit Show. But they're saying that out of those 7.6 million, 3 million of those might have an income and credit profile sufficient to purchase a medium price home in their location. So really what they're saying is just if you use our model, Vantage Score model, you will be able to do more loans. You will be able to sell more houses. That seems to be the basis of their argument, which is interesting. I mean, but uh, the verbiage that it uses to me is a little, I don't know, ambiguous uh, because it's saying that there is about the it's estimated that there's about 7.6 million consumers without a credit score who might achieve a score of 620 or more. They don't they're not even sure. You know, what if what if they do have a, a credit score and the credit score ends up being still in the 500s? Would that even be worth it? What would that make any sense? Um, and uh, with new models that included less traditional information, about three million of those might have an income and credit profiles sufficient to purchase a medium priced home. So they're not even saying that 7.6 million people are going to get a loan. They'll just have a credit score. Right. And that maybe maybe three million of those will be able to qualify for a home. I mean, don't get me wrong. Three million is a lot of people. It's a lot of Americans and, you know, that that would bring in, I guess, more money to the, the economy. But I'm not necessarily sold that that's such a good thing at this point without knowing more specifics. And I guess maybe that's why Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are, are putting it on hold. We want more info. Yeah, absolutely. We, we hope that they would do their due diligence in trying to, mm-hmm. you know, change the system like that. But it, I mean, this has been going on for so long. It's 2018 right now. And in 2011, this whole big push came about, right? It's really when Vantage started to kind of creep into the marketplace. And they've been trying to get into the mortgage stronghold since 2011. And uh, they've they've had 
a little bit of success and then they get scaled back a little bit of success and they get scaled back and it's like you know trying to change this really really big ship and trying to get it to turn and shift course and it's just it's gonna take a while and and they've been at it for seven years now and so we don't know where it's gonna go i've been watching this quite a bit because if vantage gets gets implemented in the overtake fico it's gonna change quite a bit in the credit repair game um, and it's gonna change everybody that's really trying to improve their credit because now they have to really take into account what vantage does um so it's interesting. It's gonna a lot of the, a lot of our tips and tricks might be invalidated if Vantage gets a hold of the market. You know, but, well, but we'll we're learn. on top of it though. You know, we'll just adapt to the new model. Yeah, we'll we'll learn a new system, and uh, obviously we'll make sure that everyone's in compliance. Because in the end, you know, laws are one thing, but practices are another, and people just aren't gonna seem to follow the laws. That's why we're here. In a nutshell, you. though, if you have a great FICO score, you have a great Vantage score. Mm-hmm. And if you have a great Vantage score, you probably have a great FICO score too. In fact, ironically, once you get to the really, really high credit scores, you know, the, the 780s and above, Vantage and FICO are pretty much identical, the scores. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just interesting, something that you know you guys wanna pay attention to, especially if you guys are into credit reports and credit scores like we are. Um, so check out this next headline, though. We're going to go back to Equifax. And we've you know been talking about Equifax here and there as the data breach gets more interesting <laughs> and more interesting. And now Equifax is asking a judge to dismiss all of the lawsuits that were brought against it, citing that... Um, uh, wow, this claims, is too much money. <laughs> the claims are speculative, and it's just not good enough for a class action lawsuit in federal court. So um, that's what they're saying, is that Equifax is asking a federal judge to dismiss more of the lawsuits brought against it after the Atlanta Credit Reporting Agency suffered a cyber attack last year. Um, So what they're just saying is, you know, we need you to dismiss the lawsuits. Because I guess what's going on is they're asking the judge to dismiss the lawsuits brought from financial institutions. So it looks like financial banks and basically banks are suing them and they're asking the judge to dismiss that. That's interesting, you know. I mean, of course, they're going to get their team of lawyers to fight all these lawsuits and maybe try to minimize the claims against them. But for them to say that nobody has incurred any real damages is just oh. crazy to me. Um, <laughs> I mean, we people have actually had to um, take action, right? Freeze credit, engage in credit monitoring. Um, I know Equifax offered to pay for 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 some of it for a period of time, but that's One bogus. Year. That's yeah. that's bogus, you know. That's they announce how long they're going to pay for, so the crooks are just going to wait that time period and then and then strike. Um, and if you want to freeze your credit, you got to pay the other two bureaus to freeze your credit. Equifax is offering credit freezes for free, but Experian and TransUnion are not, so you still got to pay them to freeze your credit. Um, so yeah, people have suffered tremendous damages, and when you account everybody that was potentially affected, it ended up being like 150 million. That's a lot, you know. That's pretty much everybody. You know, but this t- this kind of behavior is typical for, you know, big corporations. It's nothing new. Obviously, they're always going to try to get away with, you know, whatever they can. They're going to try, as you said, they're going to try to minimize damage. So to me, it's totally expected. Um, I just, the audacity. Yeah. The audacity, you know. Oh, come on. You can't, you can't just claim that everything's speculative when it's been such a, widespread news phenomenon you know it just everybody knows about it you know that 
you know that your your information was potentially stolen. What, what was the last figure? Seventy five percent or something ridiculous. Well, it was one hundred and forty five million. That was actually what the actual final number, 145 million. But only about 200 million Americans actually have credit profiles, right? So that right there is 72.5%. Yeah. It's outrageous. So, so yes, chances are it's more likely than not that your information was actually breached or, or hacked or stolen in some way, shape, or form. Wow. Well, I mean, it's just going to keep on interesting, taking an interesting turn. Uh, we'll see what. What it, how it plays out, what the judges say, um, but essentially, like literally, I quote: um, Equifax is taking the position that it does not owe a duty to Americans to keep their data protected. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's literally what they're trying to say um, by by making these types of moves. We'll see. I think that the, the Equifax is going to be made an example out of. Um, I hope so because of all the data breaches that have been happening. Um, you know, the one thing I will say is that your data was probably breached in another data breach before. Sure. Right? So, you know, your data was not compromised because of Equifax. It's likely been Equif- uh, compromised before. Um, but, you know, it's just but the it's, more times it's compromised, the more chances it, it's going to get into the wrong hands. But this case, the egregiousness of it all, you know, first of all, it was the largest uh, data breach of its kind it's, and the biggest in scale. Uh, second, you know, when the CEO knew about it and then basically, you know, uh, uh, conducted uh, insider uh, trades, you know. Well, they, they also hid it for a while. They didn't come out right away and allow people to protect themselves. They It was hidden for like 60 days. I mean, this is just blatant corruption, uh, you know, and carelessness. And to, to just say, ah, you know what, just dismiss these lawsuits. To me, it's just... It's outrageous. I can't believe they're they're even attempting this uh, tactic. Well, we're not the lawyers there, so we'll. Yeah. See, I you know I guess they have a strategy, or I don't know, but we'll we'll keep following this novella along. So very interesting. <laughs> so moving on, uh, going to bounce back now. A couple of weeks ago, while you were gone on vacation, I published um, the IRS scam call that we did, where for a while there, I was just getting calls from an IRS like robot saying that I was going to be taken to jail and I needed to call back. So I obviously knew it was a scam and I thought it would be funny to call them back and record it and just play play along. Um, and it actually took me like seven callbacks because every time I would call back, they would hang up on me. And it wasn't until I started to act dumb and play along that they actually started to string me along trying to get me to give them money. So, so we published this episode um, on our Facebook page. Um, and there was a video behind it as well. And then I also, while you were gone, I, I published the audio on the, on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yesterday I came across a headline that they actually got um, an Indian IRS uh, ring. And I thought that was interesting. They arrested 24 of them. Um, and what was the most interesting part about it is that the, the main people behind it were actually in the United States. I figured it was just people in India because they had an Indian accent. Again, it makes sense to me, you know, uh, Americans know the American system. They're, they're going to know. Now, now to be clear, it was Indian Indians living in America. Okay. So it wasn't, you know, uh, Americans like uh, it was actual Indian Americans. I see. Indian, uh, you know, it didn't get into the specifics of where they were born, but um yeah, they were actually here based out of the United States. So they uh, 
they got them, 24 conspirators last week. Um, and for over four years, they got 15,000 victims and they lost hundreds of millions of dollars to what they call the sophisticated scam. 15,000 people. That's crazy. And, and you think about it, like, so who would fall for it, right? They, I wasn't going to fall for it. No way, right? And probably the extra credit show listener is not going to fall for it either. But here's who they got. They got an 85-year-old woman in San Diego. Okay. They got her to pay $12,000 because they were claiming that the IRS oh, wow. was going to arrest her for tax violations. So that's who they get. They get our most vulnerable. You know what I mean? Um, By the way, that although these were obviously fraudulent claims, that is the one and only time when you can actually be arrested for not paying your debt, tax evasion. Okay, good enough for Capone, good enough for you, I guess, right? Yeah. So, so do take those threats seriously, but chances are it's fake. The IRS isn't going to call you to tell you they're going to arrest you. No. Okay. Um, so, so just keep that in mind. Definitely, yeah. But you know, that's who they got. They got a Chicago man. He paid five thousand after being threatened with arrest and deportation by supposed state police and immigration authorities. So they went as far as to have like the U.S. government show up on caller ID. Um, and that's how they were getting people, you know, and they, they, that's what they get. They get they, that's why it took me seven times to get through because they realized probably by the tone and inflection of my voice that I was not going to be an easy target. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's So if you sound scared and old and, and just like you believe it for a second, then they're going to play along. So, so you're saying that they arrested 24 people? So they so they arrested them in in so but um, so he, wow so 21 people living in the Illinois Arizona Florida California Alabama Indiana New Jersey and Texas so they were all here and then 32 contractors in India involving five call centers have been indicted on wire fraud, money laundering, and other conspiracy wow. conspiracy charges. So it was 21 of them living here in the States that were probably coordinating with call centers uh, in India to make this all happen. Well, what can you say? I guess they weren't ready, ready. Yeah, I guess not. <laughs> that's, that's crazy. So we're glad that they caught them. Hopefully it's a big sign. I mean, hopefully there's not more than one um, of these rings. But maybe there is. We don't know. But we're very glad that they caught them because this was a really, really bad scam. So, yeah, there we go. They are done. So, and then one last thing that I wanted to touch on. Um, I wanted to just kind of talk about this one on the show. It's not a headline, but a couple of weeks back, I, um, we had a local home buyers workshop here with some of our mortgage lender and real estate friends. And we just invited the public to come out and hang out with us as we talked a little bit about how to get your credit score mortgage ready. Then the mortgage lender talked about how to, you know, go through the mortgage process. And then the real estate agent talked about, you know, all the ins and outs of buying a house. And in the future, we do plan on having some of our uh, mortgage and real estate partners on the show. But for now, we're just going to talk about this that I found very, very interesting. And it's this comparison of buying versus renting. Um, and I just thought it was interesting. You know, this is an interesting metric that my friend Alan used. And basically, it was a comparison of buying a $225,000 house here in Kern County, which is where we're at, Kern County, California. And it's basically buying versus renting. And it breaks down the numbers. And Richard, being such a numbers guy and being so analytical with these numbers, I figured that you'd get a kick out of this. Oh, so, I definitely got a kick out of this. So can you just tell people what, what we're looking at? So... 
we're basically looking at a model here that shows what the cost of buying a home versus renting a home, uh, what it's going to cost you over nine years. Um, or Well, okay, let me take that back. I'll put it's, it up on the screen too, so don't worry about the camera scene. Oh, <laughs> so it's actually to determine uh, how long it's going to take for you to get uh, a return on your investment if you purchase a home versus if you rent a home. And what I'm seeing here is that, you know, after nine years of owning a home, it'll actually make more sense for you to buy a home. But before that, it's actually cheaper for you to rent, which to me is totally interesting. You know, it really takes that long, nine years plus before you actually make, it makes more sense to purchase a home. Well, I wouldn't say more sense. I think it's when it, you actually start to make, I don't want to say make money either, but I mean, literally what the numbers say is that if you buy a house right now with this example, your payment is seventeen hundred dollars, which mm -hmm. is a typical example of three and a half percent down, you know, five uh, percent interest rate, all those numbers that are standard right now. Of course, the market is volatile; it's moving. But this is just for everybody listening right now, July two thousand eighteen. If you buy a house right now, two hundred twenty-five thousand, your mortgage payment would be approximately seventeen hundred dollars. So the comparison is it's more expensive to buy right now because if you rent the same house, it's $1,500. That is correct. And so the comparison goes through and it's not going to be cheaper to buy a house or I'm sorry. So essentially you're paying more for buying than you are for renting for the first nine years. That's really the nutshell of this comparison, which is quite interesting that it's going to take you that long before you actually start to break even and start to make gains. Um, well, and that's what we were discussing before the show. Uh, you know, in my opinion, uh, that just means that the cost of homes and the interest rates is just too high nowadays. Um, it, it shouldn't take you 10 years to get essentially your return on investment. Um, and no, I wouldn't say no, but most investors would not wait that long in any type of investment. That's just too long. And so, you know, in my opinion, it's a little, it's a little high. However, um, if you are planning to build roots, you know, somewhere, it still makes more sense to purchase a home um, because, you know, although you may be paying seventeen hundred in this model, for example, here in, in Kern County now, and the rent may be only fifteen hundred dollars. After a few years, your rent is actually going to increase. Your, your rent never stays the same. So your mortgage will stay the same, but your rent will be $1,900 by year 10. Right. That That's where the break-even point starts to shift is because the annual rent increase is 2 to 3%. I mean, that's just like average, right? Mm -hmm. And so your mortgage rate payment will never increase mm -hmm. and your rent will. So that's the variable there. But here's what I found interesting. Um when I was looking at this, I was sitting there listening to Alan and I was just like, something is not sticking with me. And what the, 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 the interesting thing is that we don't have a crystal ball. No. Right. But what they're saying is that your rent is going to increase by two to three percent every year for nine years. Mm -hmm. but, but what they're also saying is that your home, you're going to obviously be making payments. So you're going to be paying the balance down. But it's going to be appreciating in those nine years as that's well. Correct. So that's what they're saying. They're saying you're bringing, bringing the balance down. And then your home value is going up. So if you were to sell in 10 years, um, you know, you paid for 10 years in a row and then you can sell and get money, right? You've built equity. 
or if you rent, you get nothing, basically. Mm-hmm. So basically, you you have to buy and hold for 10 years and then sell or rent for nine years and get nothing. So it, it would technically still make sense to buy if you're planning on being there for at least 10 years. But where, it, where this broke apart for me, and this is just speculative me, almost I want to say just like, is like I've seen this before. In mm-hmm. 2005, they made the same comparison saying if you buy now, you can, you know, your house will continue to appreciate for X amount of years mm-hmm. and then you can sell. <laughs> and then that did not work out for many, many people. No, no. And that's where I think this kind of breaks down. And I wanted to chat with Alan about it, but we ran out of time and we'll probably talk about it when we ring him on the show. Um, but I, that's where, to me, this breaks down is you're assuming that house prices are going to continue to go up for nine years where they may very well may not. It, it is highly unlikely that they will. We've... Prices of homes have been increasing steadily for years now. And, you know, the way the market goes is after so many years, they come down. They just do. And it's ne- it's not 10 years, guys. It's it's generally under 10 years where, you know, the, f- the prices start fluctuating back down. And we've been on a on an upwards trend for what, five, six years now? No, I think more. Yeah. I think it happened in 11. So so we're, we're getting to that point where prices cannot just continue to increase. It's not the market will not support it. And, you know, I'd like to have a real estate agent in here probably getting their take. Uh, they have a much more optimistic take. Um, more knowledgeable as well. You know, they, definitely. But just from outsiders looking in, you know, this is where I felt that this comparison kind of broke is where they're predicting that nine years is going to continue to. And who knows, maybe it will, but I don't think so. And that's just my no. opinion. And I I have a podcast, so I get to say it, right? <laughs> I mean, that's what it, we're just saying our opinions well, about it's this. Well, like, it's like anything else, like the stock market. It, historically, after so many years, it goes down. Yeah. It just, it always happens. There's always some sort of bubble. And in my opinion, the market's going to be reaching that point soon. It's been on an upwards trend for, since you said 2011, it, it cannot sustain itself for that much longer. So um, there we go. That's just our, our opinion. I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, I know a lot of the consumers that are listening to the Extra Credit Show potentially want to improve their credit scores to become mortgage ready. And I think long term, here's my final message. I think long term, real estate is tried and true. Yes, I so, agree. So you're always going to be paying somebody's mortgage, mm-hmm. whether it's your own or somebody else's. That's up to you. So even if you were to buy now as a long-term play, it is the smartest move you can make, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Because if, you know, I think 20 years from now, 20, you know, that person is going to, th- like, you're going to thank yourself for buying a home 20 years from ago. You, you see what I'm saying? Like, maybe it's not the, you won't get a return five years from now or 10 years from now. But 20 years from now, it is highly, highly likely that yeah. you will be very happy that you did. Because the house oh. may be close to being paid off. Uh, if things continue the way they are, I mean, it's just going to be a lot more. I mean, think about a home in 1990. If you would have bought it in 1990 and then you're going to buy that same home today, that's 28 years, right? But that's a huge difference. And so if you didn't buy a home in 1990 because you thought you were they were too expensive and now it's 2018, you're probably not happy. You don't even have to go that far back. I mean, just... You know, myself, I, I mentioned it in the show before. It was 2012. I bought my house, you know, $174,000 loan on a $184,000 more uh, house. Today, that house is worth two seventy-five, dollars and that's six years ago. You know, the difference in mortgage payment that we're paying now compared to then, 
is astronomical. Astronomical, six, seven hundred dollars more for the same house six years later. Buy. Definitely going to be worth it in the long run. You probably won't get the same um, appreciation within the six years. Like, you know, if someone buys that $270,000 home today, they're likely not going to have $100,000 in appreciation or in the next sure. six years. Sure. I think that's where the, the special ch changes. But long term, the long term move is very, very smart. So that's just our thoughts. We, we're not real estate experts, but those are just our thoughts. Uh, we have seen many, many of these real estate cycles in our credit repair careers. So that's why I feel comfortable talking about it. Mm -hmm. So, But that's about it. Uh, extra credit task of the week is... Send your opinion. Send your opinion. <laughs> Send your... No, no, no. If you are looking into purchasing a home and you need to get credit score ready, listen to our podcast or give us a call and we will make sure that you get ready ready yes guys i am anselmo moreno and i'm richard david we'll see you guys next time <laughs>